0: you're listening to the alternative investment podcast we give you the insights and
1: strategies you need to grow your wealth with alternative investments now here's your host andy Hagens. Welcome to the show. I'm Andy Haggins. And today we're talking about the secondary markets for alternative investments, a traditionally very illiquid space. But now we have liquidity options of of various kinds. Joining me is Brian King, founder and CEO at Lotus Markets. Brian, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you so much for having me. Longtime listener, first time talker.
1: <laughs> well, it's this is an awesome topic because it's been in the news so much in the past year. It's been in the Wall Street Journal. It's been in Barron's. Obviously, B reit uh, has been in the news. I think there is so much to dive in here, and especially, you know, when when we talk about alternative investments being illiquid, it's really becoming more of a spectrum, right? With with uh, NavREITs and these other intermittent liquidity products, and now with with Lotus markets and these ATSs and secondaries. Um, it's all changing. It's evolving. And so it's just exciting to be part of the space. And you're one of the individuals who's helping drive the change and driving the evolution. But before we get to Lotus Markets, why don't we start a little bit with your background? How did you get into finance and this ATS space? Yeah. So um, I started as a financial advisor at the
0: beginning of my career and then had uh, a great opportunity um, to be a part of a startup team. And that startup was called BATS. Um, for those in the alternative investment world, maybe BATS isn't a household name, um, but uh, BATS was, uh, like I said, a startup in the in the mid-2000s. We were one of the first ATSs. There were other ATSs that came ahead of us, but it really was designed to be able to trade stocks, um, whether it was New York listed, New York Stock Exchange listed or NASDAQ listed. But being able to do that fast, you know, it was all about speed. It was kind of at the beginning of the high frequency trading um, era. And so being a part of that team was fantastic. I, I also had the opportunity to move over to London and was able to um, be a part of the team to build um, BATS Europe. Today, that's actually the largest exchange in Europe. Um, and it's pan-European, pan, you know multi uh, currency, et cetera. And then I was able to move back, started their ETF business and other things. Ultimately, Bats was acquired by the Chicago Board of Options. It was a fantastic startup to exit story. Then I was able to move to the New York Stock Exchange uh, where I was able to be uh, oversee trading, market structure and ETFs there as well. And then, as my time kind of grew to a close in 2019, I, I just was seeing so much growth in the alternative investment space that I knew that that's what I wanted the next thing for me to be. Like, you know, historically, alternative investments were um, largely invested by institutions or the super affluent. Now we started to see this pendulum swing where more individual investors, whether they're, you know, you know, affluent or accredited, or even down to retail investors, we're seeing that that market grow. And I knew I wanted to be a part of that. And having built so many different marketplaces throughout my career, I thought it would be great to be able to build a secondary market
1: to help allow that marketplace to grow. Absolutely. And, you know, first of all, I totally agree about being in the space is awesome. Um, I, I just love hosting the show, the Alternative Investment Podcast, because I'm like, I'm covering a space that is growing. It's going to grow as far as like the eye can see, right? So I, I don't need to worry, like, am I, you know, covering a space that might plateau or like, I'm, by the time alts plateau, I think I'll be long dead. So I'm not, I've decided I'm just not gonna worry about that. But you, you use the word ATS, I think I, I think I mainly, basically understand what an ATS is, but I wouldn't mind a, a technical definition you, is, could you provide us with a technical definition? How does an ATS differ from an exchange?
0: Yeah. So an ATS stands for Alternative Trading System. It functions a lot like an exchange, in in many cases, just like an exchange. The main fundamental difference is that an exchange is self-regulating. An ATS is regulated by FINRA. So therefore, we also have to be a broker dealer. So we have regulatory elements from FINRA, regulatory elements from the SEC. Uh, But at the end of the day, it's a technology that allows us to match buyers and sellers in a a lit or dark method, we choose to be able to have our our markets be lit. And um, so again, we function just like a stock exchange and allows us to be able to trade alternative investments just like you would trade a stock.
1: And so you're regulated by FINRA as well as the SEC. So who is more of a pain in the you know what to deal with? FINRA or the SEC? <laughs> uh, well, uh,
0: hopefully neither parties are okay. watching, but um, I would say probably FINRA is is more challenging. The SEC is more like they need to know the framework of what you're operating in. And then they just want to make sure that you're you're doing what's best for the investors. And so they'll do checkups from from uh, from time and again, but for the most part, um, it's it's FINRA that is kind of gets into the weeds. And I think the biggest challenge is the fact that because we've created a category that really hasn't existed before, uh, I think they just need to be able to wrap their brains around what we're doing. And so I think they get into the weeds a little bit, not fully understanding, you know, what we're, tra- with the problems we're trying to solve. They do now, which is good, but it was a, uh, it was a little bit of a hurdle to to get them to the point where they did understand it.
1: Yeah, and of course I say that in jest. Obviously, regulators super important, and it's easy to kind. I think if you're an issuer, a lot of different companies in the finance space, it's easy to kind of get in that habit of thinking, well, there's just a bunch of rules, but they obviously perform a, an important function in our financial system to give everyone trust. And as an ATS or as an exchange, that trust is is so so important. So just to understand a little bit more with an exchange you know there's going to be liquidity providers on the exchange right like a specialist or that trade certain securities is there anything like that in an in an ATS like like i'm thinking uh you know i'm putting myself in your shoes without really knowing anything but at any type of marketplace that i'm trying to launch as an entrepreneur you you have that day one problem right where i need to i need a critical mass of buyers to show up or the sellers aren't going to bother showing up and vice versa But then once I create that marketplace, like if I'm eBay in 1996 and I'm the first mover, then other buyers come in because that's where the sellers are and it kind of becomes this beautiful snowball, I'm guessing. So how do you solve that day one problem of how do we get the initial liquidity on an ATS when we launch it?
0: You're exactly right. Uh, Any marketplace, the challenge is bringing in both buyers and sellers, right? That's, That's the hurdle that you have to be able to overcome. And for us... We were fortunate, we have been, uh, we've had a lot of opportunity to bring in lots of buyers. And I think a lot of that has to do with kind of my connection to um, the the financial markets for so long, we we know a lot of people that that have an interest in this space. And anytime you can give them an area to be able to um, exploit is maybe not the right word, but really find areas where there's, um, you know, opportunities, right, opportunities to provide liquidity, um, I think the 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 main word that you were looking for earlier was like a market maker. Within an exchange world, you have market makers, yes, on the floor. You'd have the you know the the old old school
1: specialists um, making markets, but I think for- I, I always saw them in the movies and I was like, I want that job when I grow. I want to be like a guy yelling and holding <laughs> papers, you know, but that's like the 1980s version of the NYSE. Okay. So th- yeah. th- are are there market makers then? Or is it more just like we you we know we have buyers because of your connections? And with these types of investments, I, I think what you're hinting at—I want to be polite about it—but uh, I, I respect it. When I go shopping on an investment shopping spree, I want to buy at a discount, right? I don't want to buy at a premium. I want to get value. Okay. Is is that really the core appeal? When you were when you're pitching and and bringing in buyers, is like you're you're going to get more value when you buy on the secondary market.
0: Yeah. So I think a, a couple things. One, today's market makers, um, what they in, in the equities world in the traditional stock world um, market makers back in the 80s, you referenced, uh, they were their spreads were so wide. And, you know, you could drive a truck through some of those spreads. Um, and then but today you're you're they spreads have tightened all the way to pennies right in the in the mm-hmm. stock world and so what happens now is the market makers of today use technology to be able to create very fast trading you know the high frequency trading world that, that we live in today but in the um alternative investment world we're not seeing day you know turnover on a you know intraday basis right uh, even if somebody were to buy something they might you know they're going to hold it for typically a, a long period of time. They have a, a longer time horizon. Now, we yeah. do have market makers that sometimes will step in and will aggregate shares for an institutional investor that has a larger appetite. So let's say it's an insurance company that doesn't want to sit there and be on a marketplace just actively buying. They might be able to engage with a market maker. The market maker says, oh, I'll buy up you know, $10 million of this particular position. And then once I have that I'll transition it to you. Um, So they're using their own uh, capital to be able to acquire those assets, and then they'll deliver it um, uh, after the fact to to the larger institution. That's some cases. Most of the time right now, we just have a lot of buyers that have showed up that have a very high level of interest in um, participating in a lot of the different products. And when we were first starting, we listed one fund, um, and it was Phillips Edison. So if you're familiar with Phillips Edison, it was a REIT they're now listed on exchange but as they were getting ready for their listing event what they wanted to be able to do is be able to you know eliminate all of those shareholders that were anxiously waiting to hit a sell button that they had been waiting for for such a long time right mm-hmm. they bought this they bought these shares they've been holding it for a really long time they're looking for that liquidity event and so when you know that you're going to a listing event where everybody's going to hit the sell button at the same time for them, if they can have a
1: pre-IPO liquidity event, then that that helps everybody,
0: right? And so,
1: so what was, would be the slang uh, for that in an IPO? That's like it's like an air pocket, right? We we don't want there to just be immediate red ink as soon as this thing IPOs. Is that basically the theory? That's right.
0: So a lot of so these these products typically do what's called an uplisting, meaning that they list on exchange, but they don't technically go through an IPO process. Okay, um, you're going through an IPO process with a stock. You know, you're going and you're garnering all of this interest from new investors, um, new institutions that have an interest in being able to to um, to 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 underwrite the stock and say oh, we're going to take along on this position for you know X millions of dollars, and and then a lot of times over it ultimately winds up finding its way into mutual funds, into ETFs, etc. But candidly, that can happen in the alternative investment space too. You have ETFs now. A new rule changed back two years ago, December of 21, where ETFs now could invest in um, alternative investments as well. Historically, you had to buy stuff as an ETF that was listed on an exchange that had certain depth of liquidity. But now um, today they they can invest up to 15% of their assets in illiquid investments. And how much better is it if you can invest in an illiquid asset that technically has liquidity?
1: Got it. Okay. So, so basically, you're able to bring in uh, buyers from your contacts, you know, your years uh, working at Baths, working at, you know, the New York Stock Exchange. Uh, how did, how did you get sellers into the ecosystem? It you know, I guess, I guess they're both important. I, I'm thinking like, well, shoot, if I'm dealing art or antiques or what, getting inventory, getting good product, actually, that probably is my number one problem, right? If you have good inventory, it sells itself. So, How did you solve that end of the equation?
0: So you make a good point bringing up art for a second. I'll just take a pause there. On the buyer side, I think that's one of the biggest things when you look at the real estate market, it is a massively addressable market. And I'd say 80% of what we trade today is real estate related. If you go into art, it's so niche, finding buyers that understand it, et cetera, it's really, really challenging. Not saying that that's not a good area to be in, that's just not where we're choosing to start. Um, Real estate, there's uh, so many different products that exist in that uh, arena. There's a lot of transparency around us. You can kind of quickly do diligence something to find out what the actual value of it is. Um, But to find those sellers, um, there there are a couple of different things. I I would say early on, it was being able to go find financial advisors that knew that they had clients that wanted to be able to sell their asset. I, I should pause and say our marketplace allows the individual investor to show up on their own. They don't have to show up with their financial advisor, but we also allow the financial advisor to show up as well. We have multiple tiers, um, you know, to our to our platform. Um, but for the um, individual investor, you know, a lot of it's just them knowing that we exist. And that's been, that has been a hurdle for sure. Going out there, it's, you know, you have you list one new product, and it's like, how do you how do you find that needle in a haystack of an investor that happens to own this particular REIT? Well, a lot of financial advisors were the ones who sold those REITs, or in almost all cases, I guess, they were the ones who sold it. And so being able to have that connection point to all the financial advisors really opened it up. And then the next level is once we now had some real success, we started partnering with the sponsors the sponsors know who has an interest in selling and it benefits them to be able to help those uh, sellers find an exit uh, because you know, at the end of the day, they, 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 want to be able to solve that
1: problem. Some of these funds. Yeah. I don't, like, I don't want a grumpy LP who's annoyed at me for, for any reason really. Right. I right. just r- rather not deal with them. I'm having this vision of like a billboard along the highway, you know, like cash for gold, it's like ca- cash for B-REIT, you know, own b you know, but uh, I, I want to ask about that actually. But, you know, interesting that you bring up the sponsors because I'm thinking it's so interesting that as, a, as I mentioned kind of the earliest part of this interview, I think the alt space is changing where it's traditionally been illiquid, but now it's like, well, it's less liquid. It's not. It's no longer really Illiquid, depending on the product, that you know some stuff is is pretty totally illiquid. But now it's more a spectrum where you have some liquidity, and you'll have uh, you know REITs like B or some of these other ones that they have um their their NAV, and they'll offer liquidity. You know maybe two percent uh, per month gated redemptions or whatever, and that's kind of a, a safety valve if I could call it that of liquidity. But then it seems to me if if that's the safety valve, uh, an ATS or Lotus would be like the emergency safety valve. It'd be you know, because they're routinely having more than two percent of their investors every month wanting to redeem. And so if other investors come to your platform and s- sell maybe at a pretty deep discount, uh, that would be pretty helpful to the sponsor, right? Because then it means there's less pressure. On their redemptions that are oversubscribed, am, am I looking at it at the right in the right way? That, that you're really kind of a friend, I guess, to some of these larger sponsors.
0: Yeah, certainly. That's that's the way that we want to be viewed is, is being able to work directly with the sponsors. Uh, and that's where we've seen our, our greatest level of success is partnering with them. Um, you know, a lot of people have said to us, um, I think everybody believes in what we're doing and agree that it's the right thing. There needs to be a secondary market for alternative investments um, and, you know, even specifically real estate related investments. But, you know, a lot of people have have said to me, like, listen, at the end of the day, though, isn't real estate Aren't these alternative investments? Aren't they supposed to be a liquid? And my response to that is, technically, you know, uh, an equity stock like a Microsoft or, a, or or whatever other stock, it's illiquid, except for the fact that there's a secondary market that allows you to be able to trade it, right? Mm-hmm. So by nature, the fund shouldn't be providing
1: um, the liquidity valve, right? I think you know yeah uh, and there's this, a huge there's a huge issue there with the, the valuation, right because i mean i just you know take it for what it's worth but just as a as a random lp who hosts a podcast i'm going to trust a valuation from your exchange uh, what securities are transacting at between a willing buyer and seller versus some sort of uh internal valuation or you know what appraisal or or whatever like, to me, that's, that's a true market. It's not really a true market. It's more of like a buyback program. If a sponsor is buying back shares that, you know, you you bought and like, that's great. You can do the buyback program, but that's not a market, right? An exchange is an actual market.
0: Yeah, that's right. I think, you know, and that's that's one of the things that we've been excited about is, you know, in addition, a lot of the buyers that we currently have, they're doing due diligence, they are underwriting each product before they put a bid out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but one thing that we've seen that's been really an exciting development recently is that, um, particularly around B B-REIT and some other um, different products is that there's a lot of these financial advisors that really love that product. And for good reason, it's performed really well, it provides a, a great exposure to um, an asset with really great managers. But what they're what some of these advisors are are on a monthly basis continuing to dollar cost average their clients into these funds. Mm-hmm. what what they're looking at is saying again, historically, like when we first launched this, I think we launched it on our marketplace end of March, beginning of April. Um, institutions came in, they were offering deep discounts. Listen, institutions want institutional size discounts, right, to be able yep. to participate. Sure. But what we've seen this great evolution happening where financial advisors are coming in and they're making markets, I say making markets, they're basically becoming buyers on our marketplace on behalf of their clients, where they're buying it at a 4% discount. Um, and so now, all of a sudden, that spread is compressed dramatically, where we're getting active buyers consistently showing up at a 4% discount. Again, it's still a discount to NAV, but at the end of the day, for a seller that's saying, I want to be able to get all of my money right now, I have a life situation or you know, have some other various reason why I need to be able to have liquidity, or just maybe fear, fear-driven, to know that they can actually go to a marketplace and be able to have an exit at, at a at a 4% discount and what's traditionally considered to be an illiquid investment um, is a, has been a great evolution in in what I would consider a, a a growing marketplace
1: got it okay so this is interesting so so for like a b read or some of these big name uh private reits non-traded reits that would be is that like a typical discount like i'm I'm kind of surprised that it's that narrow of a spread because if you read the headlines you know if you read the wall street journal or or whatever you know, you'll hear uh, experts talking heads talking about, well, publicly traded REITs, you know, are trading at a 10, 15, 20% discount and compared to some of these other private REITs that haven't written their assets down at all or, or virtually at all. So is that a typical discount for these REITs?
0: For B read it is. Um, we we also trade some other energy like energy funds. So There's about ten percent of our market is energy funds. Another ten percent is uh, like c- private credit funds. So that's kind of the the mark makeup is real estate, private credit, and um, energy. But we have an energy fund that trades today where we're we're trading it at a three four percent discount as well. Um, mm-hmm. So I think it comes down and that's a closed fund. So they're not continually raising additional capital. But sometimes when you find a, a good manager, people believe in. They're 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 investing in the opportunity to participate at a discount. There's there are some products that definitely traded a deeper discount, and mm-hmm. um, sometimes there's a fundamental issue with that fund, and so therefore their NAV might be not be super accurately reflecting what the underlying basket um, of, of the assets are. So uh, you have to go a little bit deeper um, in look in, in the price to be able to actually figure out. What is this worth? What's somebody willing to pay for it? And so sometimes you have
1: to go a little bit deeper for products that aren't performing quite as well. Understood. Okay. So just to dig in a little more, this all makes sense. And it, it also makes sense. You know, some of the bigger brand names would trade at less of a discount than maybe some of the smaller names or l- less well known, less trusted names. Um, so if, if I'm on Lotus Markets, I sign up, I'm, I'm an LP. And I want to buy some B REIT, I can buy it maybe at a 4% discount, or I'm sure changes, fluctuates. Um what kind of fees am I paying? Right. Like are there additional transaction fees? Like if I bought something, you know, through a brokerage, obviously there's trading fees besides the bid, there's a bid ask spread, I assume. And then are there kind of additional commissions?
0: Yeah. So for a buyer, there are no additional fees. Um, We we don't charge anything to the buyer. We don't charge anything, anything to the sponsor. The only fees we charge today are to the seller. Um, And right now uh, on the majority of products, we charge a 2.9% fee. And then for any NAV REIT product, um, you know, because they do have a liquidity valve and we have seen a a lot of interest there, we, we do trade that at one point nine percent, so it's a uh, lesser dis a, a lesser fee um to be able to trade in an a v REIT whether you know think of starwood um reef uh, or Blackstone's b reIT
1: Understood. yeah, I'm just you know as as you mentioned those fees, I'm thinking, okay, well, the cost efficiency is obviously a part of your strategy to to bring buyers and sellers in I mean if i'm a from you know from a, a perspective of an issuer or just in the industry in general thinking of like broker dealer type fees or you know typical loads and commissions 2.9% is 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 not a lot really compared to just just in general kind of abstracted out in the financial industry you know for these kind of especially for illiquid funds so how is when did lotus actually launch and and how is it how is it grown do you have any metrics you could provide since the launch yeah so
0: we were um we started building the platform. It took us about a year to build all the technology. There's a lot of plumbing. The way that I actually like to think of how how our platform works is kind of like if you married a trading platform like a TD Ameritrade, right, to the back-end exchange of the New York Stock Exchange and all the plumbing that goes along with it. So, um, it took us about a year to build all of that. And the other thing was it took us a long time to get through all the regulatory stuff, both the SEC and the finRA um, requirements. so twenty twenty one was let's call let's let's call it like setting the foundation. twenty we we launched at the end of twenty one with our first fund, which was, as I mentioned earlier, Phillips Edison. um, that was in December. And then we started slowly adding a few extra products throughout twenty two. Uh, and you know that was kind of planting the seeds. and then twenty three, We've seen some really good growth, um, and I think uh, quarter over quarter, it's been around eighty percent growth um, each quarter this year, wow. um, which, has been, which has been fantastic. So it's growing marketplace, super exciting to to be able to see this the traction, and um, there's some opportunities around the corner for us and
1: and twenty four that have us uh, have us really excited. Well, you know, thinking about this year and the the past twelve months in the overall markets and in the alternative investment space, there's been distress. But I'm thinking, well, distress is probably good for a a platform like yours in a way, right? It's because it's it's kind of like a Plan B platform, (laughs) and in some ways, you know, if you're certainly if you're a seller, and it's it's a good Plan B, right? Like maybe I I bought this alternative. Fund thinking I'm going to hold it for five years and something changed and I don't want to anymore. So so what's Plan B? Well, um, if if I can't get liquidity with the official liquidity program, this is where I, this is where it goes. So that kind of distress I could see, you know, providing some growth um, uh, for sure. Do you see growth continuing? I mean, obviously you can't maintain 80% quarter over quarter growth for, forever. But you, you know, do you feel like you have a lot of tailwinds to, to expand your network in the coming years? Yeah,
0: yeah I, I absolutely do. I mean, there's <clears throat> this this market, as you kind of addressed earlier, is is massive, right? So the opportunity for us to be able to to link on with some strategic partners um I think is is really going to open up the doors. Um, you know, one of the things that you also referenced just a minute ago with regard to uh you know opportunities like listen there's sometimes fear makes people make decisions uh that maybe aren't always the right decision so if i decide that i want to have a liquidity event because i'm nervous about what's around the corner you know in years past that would be something where you would really get hurt really badly if you made the decision to get out of something because historically you called up a broker the broker went and found the other side of that trade they give you a 40 cents on the dollar and then you got paid then you paid a 10% commission. So right. you walked away with 30 cents. And today we're, we've changed that dynamic dramatically. Um, and, oh, and by the way, it took a really long time uh, to, to make that whole transaction happen. Today, we just traded. We just created a new process where it actually takes us five days to settle a trade now, um, which is fantastic. Like that's from the time that you open up your account to the time you have cash in your account, five days, um, which is Amazing. really, really exciting but there's so much growth opportunity ahead of us and again partnering with new sponsors partnering with other players in this industry that have already done a lot of um, laying groundwork for adding technology to the alternative investment space it's going to open up some some really significant doors as we go forward
1: understood okay so i'm thinking of the practicalities of this so just as a for example uh, I'm an, a limited partner at Origin Investments and in one of their real estate funds. Let's say something changes and I go, oh shoot, I have to sell that holding. You know, I need that money. I'll go to Lotus Markets. I list it, you know, for two per, only a two percent discount or, or whatever, because Origin's great. Everybody loves Origin. Somebody buys it. How does Origin know that? Well, you know, we only sent Andy the K one through November twenty first or whatever, and then this other new investor. Do, do you have to, do you have to like officially partner with the sponsor to even affect that kind of transaction? Like, I I, I presume you need their cooperation at some level, right, to kind of handle that back end kind of stuff.
0: Yeah. So <clears throat> I'll start with registered funds. Uh, with funds that are registered, not fully private, right? So they're filing K's and Q's and doing it publicly with the SEC. Those technically, we don't need to have permission from the sponsor to do it. We can trade it kind of in an OTC fashion over the counter. Now, we want to have we want to have have permission. We want to work with them. So our our desire is not to work around somebody, but. Just to make it clear, we don't need to. But with something that's truly private, um, in many cases, those funds have first rights of refusal, right? Uh, so the, the the sponsor can actually say, no, I don't want that buyer to come in and, and be able to buy that asset. Um, or maybe even, no, I don't want that seller to have the ability to sell. So in those cases, we do want to have a, a working relationship with the sponsor. In some cases, I mentioned at the beginning, we're also registered as a transfer agent. So in some cases, we can become the transfer agent, where now we can Um, actually effectuate that trade in a a very, very efficient manner. But the sponsor has chosen to partner with us. So we're actually now managing the cap table. We have access to we we can facilitate everything from onboarding all the way to exit. Um, So it's we, we can kind of do everything in between. So there can be a very close relationship with a sponsor where, again, we're working directly with them, maybe even as much as, like I said, managing their cap table, doing distributions for them or whatever. Um But at the same time, we can just have like a a working relationship with them where, like Walton Global, for instance, that was the first um, family of funds that listed on our that that made secondary markets available to to their audience, right? and so we've we've traded quite a few Walton Global funds, for instance. Now they're not they're not partnered with us. We're not their transfer agent, um, but they kind of give us the blueprint to say, hey, if you want to be able to do a secondary transaction, here's how to do it. We'll work with you. We'll make sure that it happens, et cetera. So, um, so they, we do work closely with them and others as well. Um, so if you were to show up and say, hey, I want to be able to sell this particular um, LP position, our first step is typically to go say, hey, let's go get a relationship with a sponsor. Um, we also have um, a tool that allows you to be able to um, you know, cre- create an order that's like to garner interest, right? So, an, an RFQ, a request for quote that you I can see. put into our system just to because probably we don't have somebody out there that already ha- actively has a bid on it. Now, for all the products that are actively listed today, we do, we have bids for everything. Um, but for a new fund that we haven't listed before, uh, then yes, you can do an RFQ. Um, and then of course, a buyer can go on, out and put an IOI saying they have an indication of interest, they can kind of solicit interest um to be able to buy it at x dollar you know and that's how they can kind of dip their toe in the water to be a buyer
1: understood okay and i don't want to get too far out of my depth and reveal my ignorance because i'm not the most technical person but so it 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 kind of depends if it's a truly private private alt versus uh what like a public non-listed alt or you know Uh, what would you, publicly registered, I think is the term you use? Yeah, publicly registered,
0: uh, non-listed. Yeah. So there, and there's even some that are um, that are not registered. So they're private, but self-disclosing. So if you're self-disclosing, in many cases, the bigger funds are already working with the transfer agent, So they have transfer forms. If you've got a, if you have a transfer form process, we can typically trade that without engagement with the sponsor. Um, But Again, our desire is to always have that, but in a, in a private situation where there isn't a transfer form that's readily available, et cetera, we're going to want to work with that sponsor.
1: I can only imagine the, the infrastructure in the back end that you all have had to build out, right? Because you're talking about, you know, working with different asset classes, different types of sponsors and funds, and there might be a template for one that works for similar ones in that industry. But then you get to a new sponsor, maybe in a different sub asset class or sub sector or whatever, and their operating an agreement, subscription docs, or whatever it could be way different, right? Uh, but but maybe they want to work with you, and so there's going to just be customization. I, I guess some amount of customization with each deal, right?
0: Yeah. So we we've built a lot of tools that help to automate a lot of that onboarding element. So while there may be a lot of differences. We've streamlined processes to make it um, as simplified as possible. Um, and we carry the vast majority of all the weight, meaning that anything that is manual at all for onboarding somebody, we're going to do it. But once you get it onboarded, all of it is automated. So um, the process for on, onboarding a, a new individual, you know, a new client, if you're a financial advisor, it's very, very simple, straightforward, easy and efficient. So, And we handle everything from, like I said, onboarding to Uh, matching execution, trade settlement, um, and then now, of course, transferring ownership. So it's all kind of contained in our silo.
1: So so thinking as an LP, then it it might understand if I'm able to sell any LP position on your platform, I don't need to worry. Like as far as K1s and all that stuff, that's going to be taken care of. It's more a question of, if it's if you know if I'll be able to affect that transaction at your platform, and that's kind of where you say you know you might need to list it and kind of get the the RF what was it RFQ RFP yeah. yeah yeah so that's more the question. It's not so much a question if I'm able to transact it. I know it's it's kind of in good hands. That it's all going to get sorted out by someone a lot more meticulous than I am during tax season, right?
0: That's right. Yeah. So uh, again, we we don't want to transact something if there's going to be roadblocks along the way. So before we Allow transactions to happen. We're going to have, have all that buttoned up. And again, for some of these funds, uh, we even have the ability to do their K ones for them. Um, but, you know, again, we we own the cap table. If we're the transfer agent, we own it. So we have the ability to um, help the the sponsor uh, as they go forward. But uh, but yeah, that's a fairly standardized process.
1: I feel like you know, as an entrepreneur, I respect the heck out of you. But this business plan sounds to me like we're going to willingly accept like a hundred different headaches. Uh, you know, yeah, I mean, that in a good way. Like, these are distinct, many different, distinct, kind of hard, challenging problems, and you need to solve them all, right? If you, because if you only solve of the different aspects that we've discussed, if you'd only solved a couple of those problems, the exchange wouldn't really be very useful, right? Like, at the end of the day, I yeah. want it to be a seamless experience as an LP.
0: Yeah, I I agree, but the the one caveat that I would say is that we've been very intentional for the types of things that we've brought on, right? Mm-hmm. So I mentioned earlier we listed one fund. It initially it was a REIT. There was a, a publicly registered non-listed REIT. It was easy, right? Easy if you know how to build a marketplace, which which fortunately we have a lot of people that that know how to do that. Um, and so that doing that first one was easy, and then you 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 Add more that are very similar to it, and then you're like, okay, let's stretch ourselves or some opportunity to be able to do some things in some um, private but non-registered funds, and then you you so you stretch yourself on that, and then a new asset class. But as I mentioned earlier, we're not doing all different types of alternatives yet. We're doing three, realistically three: real estate, energy, and um, credit slash debt. Those are the three different areas that we're, we're trading right now, and. At some point, you know, I do want to be able to add hedge funds. I do want to be able to add private equity. Um, But at the same time, like those are going to come. The the interesting thing is, as I mentioned earlier, is you have to have buyers that are standing there that understand those products, understand how to underwrite it, Mm -hmm. et cetera. Um, So we're we're slow playing it to an extent. Um, And uh, we do think that there's some we do believe that there's some other things that we could partner with um, other companies
1: that will also allow us to be able to kind of more organically grow into that marketplace. Understood, and you, you mentioned that you're slow playing it, but at the same time, 80% growth quarter over quarter. So you're now, you are one of the largest ATSs in the United States, is that right? Yeah, so it was pretty exciting when we, we looked at uh, the end
0: of Q2 results, we became the, we moved into the third largest um, ATS in, in the US. That's, you know, fantastic. I think the only two that were behind is ARCA, uh, which is owned by the NYSE, they have a, uh, an ATS. And then the other one is OTC Markets. Um, and so behind those two, were, we
1: were number three. Understood. Okay. Now, hosting this show and even beyond it, just kind of being in the alt space, I have to say I've, I've met a ton of GPs, a ton of sponsors. I always love meeting GPs. And I want to state this delicately, but there is a spectrum of professionalism In the uh, fund management world, you know, amongst GPs, you know, all different shapes and sizes and ways of operating. I imagine that they have to be on the professional end of the spectrum to even be able to interact, for you to be confident on your end that we're interacting with a sponsor who we do what we say we're going to do, but we have to trust the sponsor on their end, right, to implement. So, are there any sponsors that are either too small or maybe they're too new and unproven, who who you sort of say, you know, we don't really wanna work with you, at least not right now, or is it kind of anyone who's willing to work with you, you'll allow them? Yeah, so we haven't had too many um, cases
0: where we've run into, in, into firms that we say, oh, we wouldn't work with them. Um, we, do, uh, we do a little bit of due diligence. At the end of the day though, we can't be the ones that are diligencing the, the individual funds because, Uh, We're not making a buy or sell recommendation, right? Um, Right. I think a lot of times the 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 leading indicator for us is when we work with a when we start to entertain looking at bringing on a new fund, we'll go out to our our investor network, our buyer network, and say, "Hey, does anybody have an appetite for being able to diligence this, or you could be able to put up a bid for it?" Um, And that's that's really kind of what drives that because I I think at this point every product that's on our marketplace today has a buyer. Um, and so
1: that's that's a very- That is so important. I'm sorry to interrupt, but I mean, that that is a huge statement. I mean, that's really, really important that people aren't listing something on the exchange and then there's crickets on the other end. Um, I think yeah, that's it huge. It doesn't mean to say that there wouldn't be a case or if, if all of a sudden somebody
0: show, gave up a, a devastating, you know, um report or something like that that all of a sudden all the buyers wouldn't run um because that's certainly possible it happens in the equities world too um usually you you could you just can easily more easily find a bottom right but if you if you have a market like this where you only have i think we probably have a network of like 25 buyers currently which is pretty big but and many of these like i said are very institutional so they're very very deep pockets um and so they cover most of them uh, on their own they cover multiple you know many different products um and product types but all that being said um you know there's a, there are chances where somebody could run a bid away with with a report or something
1: like that um but as of right now yeah we have buyers for everything understood well we're almost out of time but i wanted to get your thoughts on where it goes from here right i mean i'm guessing you believe as i do that the you know the there's a lot of green pasture ahead for alternative investments a lot of growth ahead for the space overall but what about the secondary markets i mean is, do, do you see hockey stick growth essentially for the next decade or, or or what are your thoughts i
0: i do um you know as a as a founder and a ceo like that's i have to have that belief um and, sure. and i wouldn't have that I, I wouldn't be doing this if i didn't think that there was that that chance but i mean the the opportunity ahead of us is, is pretty significant. And, and I think I mentioned this earlier, like at the end of the day, a lot of the funds that are trying to, to that are designing themselves to have these liquidity valves at the end of the day, in my opinion, uh, little self-serving, but in my opinion, uh, the liquidity shouldn't fall to the sponsor, right? Um, I know you see interval funds, you see these NAV REITs that, that are created, and it's great to have that liquidity valve, but at the end of the day, a secondary market can so much more efficiently meet the demands of that liquidity um, and be able to do it without having to do unnatural things. In many cases, you'll see when funds have to create liquidity, ultimately what they do is they start having to sell assets or they have to raise money right. in a natural way from from a from you know various sources and giving them preferred deals to be able to step in. Um, and when you have those types of of situations. You know, again, if you you realize that liquidity shouldn't be provided by the well, fund. It's,
1: it's hurting. To your point, it's hurting the investors sometimes who stay in the fund, and so it's like if we could just take this function off our plate, the investors are going to be better served if this function is performed elsewhere. Yeah,
0: I I, I agree hundred percent. And and we're we're just getting started. I mean, the if you look at just the real estate market alone, the commercial real estate market and the funds that exist, I mean, it's a multi-trillion-dollar marketplace today. I think we have. A little over two hundred billion dollars represented on our marketplace. um so it's uh, it's it's a it's a it's a big marketplace, but you know we're talking in comparison of multiple trillions of dollars. um so there's a there's a lot of opportunity of growth here and um and again, I, I alluded to the fact that there's there are partners out there that we're talking to that have already taken some first steps and 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 really being able to modernize this marketplace. and really that's what our core core goal is is to to really modernize the alternative investment space. And there's a lot of things that we've already done, but there's so much more that we're, we're looking forward to being able to do. Um, and I think maybe one other thing I should, in talking about modernizing is data is so so important um, and something we're getting ready to roll out, we'll be announcing it within the next couple of weeks. So maybe a little uh, early glimpse into it, but we've created a data source that's going to be able to, to function a lot like the Yahoo Finance. Um, as a guy who financed us for public equities and, 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 other investments, we're going to be creating that for alternative investments. We're going to be giving it away for free. So people will be able to see, look and do some digging and stuff like that for private deals, obviously we're going to provide that same information, but you're going to have to be accredited. You're going to have to be able to get behind the firewall and, and, and that type of thing to be able to look at the private deals. But, um, really excited about, again, rolling out and, and building up the transfer agent business, the, 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 the data business. Um, and then just getting more and more of these sponsors listed directly with us.
1: Understood. And I, I love that you mentioned, you know, the modernization of, you know, the, the marketplace and the user experience. Speaking as an LP, but, but also I think this will resonate with a lot of advisors and RIAs. It's really the friction, right? Because, sure, I want to maximize returns. I want to maximize risk-adjusted returns. But I also don't want my life to be like full of headaches and paperwork, right? Like I want a, a pleasant user experience, and I think in a lot of areas in our, our lives, technology has sort of trained us to expect that easier user experience. But you know, they'll, for various reasons, alternative investment space has lagged behind. But I think it's it's finally come to where companies like yours, companies like iCapital, there are many others, are removing a lot of that friction that had been there previously, and I think that's a big part of the growth. just as much as the portfolio diversification and you know returns and all that's just it's just more pleasant to invest right. in alternatives now, right?
0: yeah, I, I agree one hundred percent. I mean with when you look at um, you know technology and what it can do, it allows more sponsors to be able to to enter into the marketplace. you know for us, you know we use technology all the way through. so, Nobody touches a piece of paper. Nobody touches a medallion signature guarantee. Um, nobody touches anything along those lines. It's it's fast, automated, um, and you know. And again, there's a lot of people that have gone before us to really help set that stage. Um, and uh, and we're going to be able to leverage you know those relationships and and really
1: I think be a catalyst um, in continuing the modernization. I love it. So Brian, we're about out of time, but but where can our audience of high net worth investors, advisors, and asset managers go to learn more about Lotus Markets or to sign up for your platform?
0: Yeah. So uh, anybody can sign up. Uh, They would just go to lotusmarkets.com. And uh, there's a lot of information there. Um, Of course, you can follow us on on LinkedIn. Uh, We put a lot of content out as well. Um, and that's, you know, of course, you can also Lotus Markets, but uh, and then they could email me, um, and I'm sure you'll be able to put my information in the the message, the 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 notes as well.
1: Yep, we'll put that in the show notes, which is a reminder to our audience are always available at wealthchannel.com. Brian, thanks again for coming on the show today. Awesome,
0: thank you so much for having me. That's it for today's show. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a rating and review to help spread the word to other investors. And we'll be back soon with another episode.